Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 11. Some days I wasn't able, there was always came. My radio success began opening doors for me. I was one of the few local artists with the office line number to 102 Jams, which meant that I could actually get someone on the phone and be allowed in the building. I made sure not to wear out my welcome at the station, but being there was like being in Jive Records. I felt like I had infiltrated the enemy's lair. Every time I was there, it was eventful. The first time I rapped live on Busta Brown's Midday Show, I had made him an intro, but the CD player was broken, so he had me do it live. We'll do it live. We'll do it live! The second time I wound up battling West Coast wordsmith Chino XL, beating him easily because he was only doing rhymes from songs on his album, which I'd memorized front to back a few months prior and therefore could use against him. He gave me his number and told me to call him. I never did. I have no idea why. The third time I went to 102, I met rap legend Dougie Fresh and his DJ Barry B of fame. I called him that all night and he seemed to think it was pretty funny. Doug's father was wearing black Israelite garb, which sort of intimidated me. He was polite, though. After Kevin Chaos played ASAP for them live, Barry asked for two copies of my record and started his DJ set with the song later that evening. Doug gave me his number, but as with Chino XL before him, I also never called. Maybe that was stupid, but I couldn't think of a cool way to approach it. Somewhere in my mind, I thought I'd seem corny to them, and I couldn't take that risk. Maybe if I did, I could have been the next Little Vicious. ASAP eventually began to fade out. I tried to extend the shelf life by attempting a remix with my crew, then known as Extended Fam. We did a few shows and gave the group thing the old college try. But they smoked a lot of weed, so as a unit, we lacked drive and productivity. I also learned that I had made a huge mistake with ASAP by not encoding the song via Nielsen BDS. Had I done so, I'd have concrete data showing the song's airplay. But without it, ASAP's airplay was just word of mouth. My life felt optionless. I moved back to Durham and into my father's house while doing everything that I could to stay inspired. I earned $150 for doing a local radio commercial for a store called Urban Hype. I began working there shortly after, but I was broke, so I left after a few months. I tried selling cars at a Mazda Hyundai Kia dealership in Durham, where the clientele had credit scores lower than their monthly car payments, and the staff resembled the cast of Oz on HBO. I felt out of place, but since I didn't have to put too much thought into it, I stayed put for a while. At least I could afford my own apartment. Most days I'd rack my brain, trying to think about what else I could be doing to get a record deal. I attempted to trademark What's-His-Name with the help of an entertainment lawyer in San Francisco that my sister was working for. Somewhere along the way he abandoned the filing and so I completed it. That was, of course, shortly after $800 abandoned my bank account and appeared in his. More on him later. The local scene was still there for me. I was approached to do a few compilation albums that I knew would never see the light of day, mostly by locals who wanted to be the next music mogul or drug dealers looking to watch their money. I'd never say no, but I'd always give them the same vague answer. Yeah, no doubt, just hit me. Eventually, I was approached by Mammoth Records in Carborough, NC, which had national distribution. They asked me to submit music for consideration, but went exclusive with local collective Taifu, who were my friends. 
It was yet another dead end and another blow to my ego. One night while having dinner with my mother, I got a call from Skaz telling me that he had finished mixing the song we had been working on together. Yo, why don't you come by and pick it up, he told me. And when I told him I was busy, he replied, you should try to come tonight if possible. Skaz was mild-mannered, but as with Zach's suggestion years ago that I should start writing raps, he seemed oddly persistent. I've never asked him if he was urging me to come that night for a reason, if it was just the way I had heard it in my head, or if it was some divine power influencing me to react to his words, but that night would change everything for me. When I arrived at Skaz's, I saw someone standing in the bedroom where he kept all of his equipment. He had his back turned, but I knew exactly who it was. It was the man, the myth, the legend, Dark Gable, Black Caesar, Black Nova, Count Macula, King Asiatic Nobody's Equal. It was Big Daddy Kane. For years I had heard that Kane had moved to either Raleigh or Durham, but I was never fortunate enough to cross paths with him. He was one of my earliest influences as a rapper, and even though his career was not what it once was, he was still an icon and a rap godfather. Skaz had just begun DJing for Kane during his live shows, which had become the legend's main source of income. Whether Skaz knew it was time for us to meet or it was dumb luck working in my favor, that night I finally got my chance to meet him. I tried my hardest to appear collected, yet not unimpressed to see him there. I acknowledged him with a simple, what's up, before Skaz made the introduction. Josh, you ever met Kane? He asked. Nah, what's up, man? It's a pleasure. Kane, this is my boy Josh. Kane simply extended out his hand and replied, What's up? Not rude, yet not the slightest bit enthused. This wasn't Kane's first meet and greet with the local, and he was a master of appearing ambivalent. After listening to an intro that he and Skaz had put together for an upcoming show, Kane finally addressed me. Yo, you driving? I told him I was, and he asked if we could go to my car to hear how the intro sounded. Yeah, no problem, I replied, trying not to sound excited. The two of us walked back to the Royal Blue Jeep Grand Cherokee I was driving at the time. I was happy that I didn't drive a hoopty because it was an opportunity to make a good first impression. We listened to an old school 70s beat that he had looped for about four minutes until he finally broke the silence. So you in the music industry? Me? I said laughing. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to be. What, you a DJ or something? Nah, I rhyme, I said, sounding matter of fact. He seemed intrigued. Yeah, I just did this record that was pretty big on the radio, actually. Skaz has it. I'll let you hear it when we get back inside. A few minutes later, we walked back into Skaz's house, and I wasted no time. I asked Skaz to play Kane ASAP, and he obliged. As the first verse started, I noticed Kane paying close attention to the lyrics. He had, after all, paved the way for any current MC that took rhyming seriously, and I assumed that he was making sure that I was carrying the torch properly. After eight bars, he looked up at me with a concentrated look, pointed to the record, and then spoke. That's you? I just smiled while nodding my head. Once the record was finished, Kane looked at me pleased, extended out his hand, and said, Wow, brother, that record was hot. It was like he had snapped out of whatever somber mood that he used as a shield. I asked Gas to play the lesson so Kane could hear more. I figured he would appreciate the old-school nod and would dig the lyrics. I was right. I was on a roll, and I was about to play Kane as many songs as he'd listened to. Who knew when I would get this opportunity again? Yo, Skaz, let him hear that joint we just did. I want to hear it mixed anyway. But before Skaz could even grab the CD, a more animated Kane came alive right in front of my very eyes. 
Nah, put on a beat. I want to hear him spit. Kane was hype, and his excitement was contagious. When Skaz put on an instrumental, I went to work. With each verse, Kane got more and more excited, and as he danced around in his seat, smiling with a scrunched up face that implied his sheer delight, I wrapped my heart out and impressed yet another one of my idols. I must have done 10 verses that night, 16 if you count the ones he heard in my two songs. Once I was finished, he said, wow, my brother, you got some shit. As the night came to an end, I knew I had to find a way to establish a relationship with him. It turned out that he did, in fact, live in Durham, right around the corner from my sim. All I wanted to do was know him, maybe have enough of a relationship with him to dap him up if I ever saw him in the club. At least that's what I was telling myself in my head. But I spoke unfiltered and from the gut. Yo, I'd love to do a joint with you, man, I told him. He said cool and told me to take down his number. I concentrated on each digit and wrote it down as clearly as I had ever written a series of numbers ever in my life. I also wrote down my phone number with Josh, parentheses, what's his name, next to it and handed it to him. He questioned my stage name and asked me what it said. And when I told him, he laughed and said, huh, I like that. I wondered if he'd ever call me or if I would have to call him. I wasn't going to let this be another Chino Excel or Dougie Fresh situation where I was too bashful to call. But a few days later, my cell phone rang with a blocked number. What's his name? Yo, I said, sounding confused. What up, man, this Kane. My stomach dropped. Yo, what you doing today? Um, nothing really. I'm off, so I'm just like driving around, I said. Cool, man, cool. Yo, won't you come by my crib? Holy shit, I thought, as the butterflies in my stomach flapped their pterodactyl-sized wings. I'm about to go to fucking Big Daddy Kane's house! I could barely get my thoughts together. What was he calling me for? Did I blow him away so much that he wanted me to rush right over so we could plan out our lyrical world domination strategies? Would he ask if he could mentor me? Maybe I'll be his protege. I mean, why would he call me over for no reason, right? I knew this had to be big. Eventually, I arrived at the apartment complex, realizing that it was where Jay Mundine lived. Kane lived on the second floor, and I'd have to walk up large concrete steps to get to his apartment. I knocked on his green door with my knuckles instead of using the door knocker. It seemed like a more respectful choice. Kane answered the door casually, but the buildup from the ride over made him appear almost Christ-like to me with a bit of an aura around him. Not like Rick James in the Chappelle Show sketch, but more like what you see rising from the hood of a running car when it's unbearably hot outside. I knew it was in my head. Once inside, I took in the entire apartment with my eyes, excited to find out what a rap legend lived like. I slowly realized that it was no different than the common man. The floors had flat gray industrial carpeting and the walls were white but decorated with framed posters of Muhammad Ali, old 70s exploitation movie posters and other random art. On the mantle above the fireplace was the Grammy that he won for his involvement with the Quincy Jones Back on the Block album and a Soul Train Award. To the right of the fireplace was a giant big screen TV and the wall above that had three gold album plaques. One for his album, It's a Big Daddy Thing. One for Biz Barkey's The Biz Never Sleeps, which he wrote most of. And one for the late Big L's album, The Big Picture, where he was featured on the song Platinum Plus. A black leather sectional occupied most of the living room and the apartment was kept very neat. Though it was not the home that was worthy of an MTV Cribs visit, it was the lair of a legend and I was happy to be in it. What up, Josh? Kane said in his Big Daddy Kane voice. Again, I wondered what we would do that day and why he called me over. 
I was anxious but managed to get myself together enough to engage in casual conversation. We shot the shit for a few hours and watched clips from old movies. He found them hysterical, and though somewhat lost, I played along. Yo, you gotta be anywhere? He asked. Holy shit, I thought. Are we about to go to the studio? Maybe he's taking me to the radio station so he can announce to the entire Triangle area that I was his new protege. Maybe we're going to the airport to jump on a private jet and fly to New York so he can walk me right into Russell Simmons' office. No, there's no way he could afford a private jet with an apartment like this. The suspense was killing me. Do I have to be anywhere? Dude, are you fucking kidding me? I'm never leaving. I replied, nah, not really, what's up? As I waited three whole seconds for my idol to bestow upon me the top secret plans, my anxiety raged. Finally, I heard his deep voice begin to rev up and deliver the message that I knew would kick off the first day of the rest of my life. Speak, damn it, I thought to myself. Baptize me with your wisdom, O oh wise one. Um, Kane said, you can run me to Bed Bath & Beyond real quick. And thus began our friendship. And for the record, he opted for a lovely 1,000 thread count Croso comforter set. For the next few months, I'd hang out with Kane at least once a week. Sometimes we'd chill at his house and watch TV or talk about music. He always had the best stories, like when Shaheem the Rugged Child ran off in an arcade in Vegas and was lost for hours while they searched the entire hotel to find him. I'd hear about Biz Markey and how he loved watching TV so much that he installed one in the middle of his steering wheel in the early 90s. He told me that he'd watch it while driving down the highway at 60 miles an hour and everyone who rode with him was terrified. He also told me that Biz told Craig Mack that he looked like he had gotten hit in the face with a bag of hot nickels. And if you don't know why that's funny, you should Google image search him immediately. R.I.P. Craig. He even told me that he once saw a popular, seemingly straight male R&B singer making out with a popular, seemingly straight male boxer in the dark corner of a nightclub in Atlanta. The stories were insane, but I had a feeling like they were probably true. Sometimes he'd cook and ask if I was hungry. One time while making fish, he told me to answer his cell phone. When I did, I heard, This is the Honorable Bishop Don Magic Wong, calling to speak to Mr. Big Dada Kane. Here and there, I'd take him to run errands, similar to our initial hangout. For whatever reason, he never owned a car. Some nights we'd go to the bar or club, and he basically only went places where it was appropriate to dress up. Kane was a pimp, or at least he dressed like one, and you had to follow suit. Literally. Sometimes we'd all be excited to go out, and when we'd pick up Kane, he'd take my radio hostage and pop in an old-school R&B mix CD that he had just made hours before. Not exactly the theme music we generally rode to on the way to the club, but he was Big Daddy Kane for fuck's sake. What was I gonna do? Tell him he can't listen to an old-school R&B mix CD that he had just made hours before? I would have listened to Snuff Film Audio if he wanted to. And this was our friendship. I was his friend, his driver, and his musical cohort. But most of all, I was still a fan. Eventually, after many trips to the grocery store and one to a gym that he signed up for but never actually went to, I got my chance to record a song with him. I wish I could say the session was magical and changed the way I recorded and thought about music forever, but it wasn't. It was like doing a song with my friend. We wrote it at his round glass kitchen table, then recorded it at Melvin's house. I went first, he went second, and then I went third. The chorus was something stupid that he came up with and I altered for my part. I didn't care, I was doing a song with Big Daddy Kane. And if you look hard enough, you can probably find it on the internet. 
The novelty of being friends with Kane wasn't enough to keep me focused and happy in my real life. I jumped from car dealership to car dealership, always in search of a better pay plan. I got the opportunity to earn a lot more money and was hired to be the finance and insurance manager at a Honda Volvo dealership in Chapel Hill. Because of the increase in responsibility, I was forced to take my job more seriously. I worked even longer hours and it almost instantly began taking a toll on my creativity. Work was first, music was second, and it sucked. But I could always rely on Kane to help me snap out of my funk, at least temporarily. On September 10th of that year, 2001, he called to invite me to his 33rd birthday party and told all 25 or 30 guests to bring bottles of Remy Martin. When we arrived, we were told that there would be no ice or chasers, and one by one, we all realized that we were about to be drunk. Once we were all good and shit-faced, we began snapping on each other, or scolding, as it's known in Durham. The laughter ensued, and for a few hours, I had forgotten that I was in a rut. At one point, Kane said that Asim looked like a Feeny Shakur, and then Asim told our friend Keith, who was wearing an odd plaid shirt, that if he didn't shut the fuck up, he was going to bend him over his knee and play checkers on his back. As soon as Kane started on me, I made fun of the boots and jumpsuit he was wearing with no shirt. It's possible that I've never laughed so hard in my entire life. It was 4.30 a.m. when we finally all went home and I had to be at work just four hours later. After three hours of sleep, I pulled myself out of bed, still drunk from the night before, and got in the car to go to work. While listening to the syndicated Russ Parr morning show, one of the hosts nonchalantly mentioned that an airplane had hit the World Trade Center before going right back into his jokes and prank calls. I thought nothing of it until I arrived at work to find everyone crowded around a small TV in the break room. What's going on? I said. It's terrorism, man! One paranoid co-worker said to me as I drunkenly laughed in his face. Two minutes later, we watched the second plane hit the tower right after I had taken a bite out of my Pop-Tart, and instantly, I wasn't drunk anymore. By the new year, I was starting to feel like a real loser. Durham seemed frozen in time, and nothing was changing or evolving to give me any inspiration to make music or hope for gain. I ate the same lunch from the same four fast food restaurants, hung out with the same friends in their same apartments, went to the same mall and saw the same people I'd always seen in the same places I'd always see them. I'd wake up, go to work, get stressed out, and then come home. At one point, I had stress-induced heartburn for three weeks straight because of my job, something I'd never experienced before or since. As I delved deeper into the automotive industry, I learned that it was a far dirtier place than I'd ever imagined. I didn't like it, but I was finally making real money, even if my recording career was at a standstill. After a few weeks of not hanging out with Kane, he called me to come over. He was enthusiastic and seemed happy to see me. And after a few minutes, he asked if he could call his friend in Brooklyn so we could rap for each other over the phone. My mind was out of it, but I agreed. His friend went first and I could tell he was hungry. I tried to muster up the energy to be what's-his-name, but Josh was far too stressed out and preoccupied with work to focus on rapping. A few bars in, I stumbled my words and even had to stop mid-sentence at one point to swallow the spit that had built up in my mouth. I finished and there was a silence until his Brooklyn protege politely said, I, I, I could tell he was just being nice. My performance was garbage and I left shortly after the phone call ended. I wasn't my normal jovial self and I lacked enthusiasm for making music. I truly didn't know what my life had become. I was off the next day and Kane knew it. 
He called me that evening and told me that he needed to talk to me and that I should come by as soon as I could. When I arrived, I was somber, and when I knocked on the door, I heard Kane yell for me to come in. I walked into his apartment and it was as dark as it was outside, except for a glade-scented candle that was burning on the round glass table where he sat. I noticed him sitting there in a pair of Gucci pajamas, wearing glasses with yellow lenses and a black fishnet do-rag. He was barefoot and clutching a room-temperature tumbler of cognac. I could tell by how his head was slumped that it wasn't his first of the evening. He didn't even look up at me. Sit down, he said as 70s R&B played in the background. What's up, man? Kane asked me inquisitively. He wasn't using slang to say hello. He wanted to know. Nothing, I told him. Nah, for real. What's up with you, man? I couldn't even come up with a response. Listen, Josh. I seen you moping around for the last few months. Everything I... I guess so, man. I'm just frustrated, I lamented. I know you are. I can tell. And it's starting to take a toll on your music. Stuff you've been playing me lately, it's all over the place. It's like you don't even know who you are as a rapper anymore. And yesterday, when I asked you to rap for my man over the phone, I was disappointed. Shit was embarrassing. Yeah, but it was the same lyrics. It wasn't like my lyrics were bad all of a sudden, I said defensively. But it ain't about the lyrics, and you know that. Your delivery was terrible. You was running out of breath and choking and shit. I know, I told him calmly. I'm sorry. Listen. Don't apologize to me, apologize to yourself, cause you're the only person you're hurting. I guess so. You know why I was so disappointed in you? I assumed the answer was obvious, but I was wrong. Because, man, you got a gift, and it's all going to waste right now. Thanks, I replied without ever looking up at him. Nah, for real, listen to me, you have it. Did you know that? I was confused yet silent. As a rapper, you have something that's very important. Only a few rappers have it. I'm saying like four or five other rappers other than myself, and that's it. What? I asked. It's like this thing. I can't really explain it. It's like you have the exact formula it takes to be incredible. It's like the right amount of wordplay with the right amount of humor. You got them near slick lines, but it doesn't seem clownish, you know what I'm saying? Your flow is impeccable. I noticed it the first time I heard you rhyme. And because of that, you a star, man. You got it. It, it, and it is not easy to come by. I began to smile a little. I guess I sort of understand, I told him. I've just never really thought about it like that. So like, who else has it? Does Jay-Z have it? Oh yeah, Jay got it. I noticed it the first time he rhymed for me too, just like you. And I got it. And Pun, Big Pun had it too. I began naming rappers. Rakim? Hoorah, yeah, Ra got it. But as I listed some notables, expecting the same response, I was surprised. Nah, see, he don't got it, Kane said. See, let me tell you something about him. He got a lot of people fooled, but he ain't got it. With all respects due to Kane, I would never utter the names of whom he felt didn't have it, but trust me, you'd be surprised. Unless, of course, you had it, and then you'd understand why. I always thought I was good, but I was starting to realize that I was a member of a very exclusive club. What you got is special. Don't ever forget that. And when you truly learn what it is, you'll start to recognize who has it and who doesn't. You need to get that it back or it's over for you. Do me a favor. Find it. Find it. I'd never had a conversation with anyone like this in my life, let alone one of the greatest rappers of all time. My eyes welled up with tears a bit. 
Music was my life and somehow I had managed to let everything else get in the way. As eccentric and hard to read as Kane was at times, I trusted him. Confidence was the foundation of any great MC and I didn't have any. What was this it he spoke of and if I had it, then how do I get it back? My mind started to wonder as we sat there in awkward silence for another 10 minutes. The sound of Curtis Mayfield filled the speakers while the scent of Hawaiian breeze filled the room. You want some Remy? He asked me. Nah, I said. I think I'm a bounce. I got some thinking to do. I walked away from that conversation feeling different than I had in months. If nothing else, Kane had planted a seed of confidence in me that could never die. You see, someone, once a legend in your field, an architect of your craft, tells you that you have a talent that can't be learned and is seldom understood and everything changes. You start to look at what you've been doing right and what you've been overthinking. You see the forest for the trees and can develop things naturally without having to force them. I felt like I was Neo and that Morpheus had just told me about the Matrix. Kane had opened a part of my brain that had been shut down for months and I needed to act on it. It was time to reignite the flame that once burned brightly. Our relationship wasn't all about me being his chauffeur. It was deeper than that. We were brothers, kindred souls, members of the same fraternity. Kane was in his 30s and his days of being the best rapper on the planet were far behind him. I, on the other hand, was still young and it was my responsibility to uphold and cultivate the gift I had been given and it was Kane's job to tell me that. I didn't know what my next move was, but I did know one thing. I had to find it. it. 